This past decade, the war on terror and the COVID-19 pandemic have brought the issues of mental health and post-traumatic stress to the forefront, haven't they? As we've learned, war isn't the only catalyst for post-traumatic stress. It can develop after exposure to any psychologically traumatic event. Severe anxiety resulting in sleeplessness, flashbacks, depression, explosive anger, and addictions is not uncommon. When Noah and his family stepped off the ark, they stepped into a barren, lonely planet. Perhaps you've seen a sci-fi or a movie thriller portraying some small band of survivors following a nuclear holocaust. Those images may be the closest glimpse any of us will get to imagine what Noah faced. No human being could experience what he and his family had without trauma. They must have had many questions once they stood on firm soil again. Would any of the routine, structure, or order of life with which, with which they'd lived before the flood remain? How would they survive in this new world? The earth looked so different. Would it still produce food? Would the basic principles of nature even be the same? And what were God's plans? and expectations for his creation after the flood. I can only imagine that Noah must have been overwhelmed. Now, you and I may not have experienced post-traumatic stress. I hope you never will. But all of us have had crises of one sort or another. All of us know what it feels like to be overwhelmed on some level. I don't know about you, but when I'm overwhelmed, I long for clear direction. It can be difficult to know where to start. I need to sort out which steps to take first. I also need some encouragement, some reassurance that I will get through my situation. Interestingly, God's first words after Noah came off the ark show how greatly Noah also needed assurance and direction. Well, we've discovered that the early chapters of Genesis teach us much about God. Chapters 7 and 8 of Genesis tell of God's grace in saving Noah. And in chapter 9, we see God's grace in offering Noah much-needed direction and assurance. God gave basic direction in the form of a new world order, and a covenant, a promise to reassure Noah and his family. Chapter 9 begins with a description of the new world order. Verse 1 says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Assurance that life would continue is implicit in the command. Despite mankind's wickedness, God hadn't abandoned his purpose to allow life to flourish on earth. Although the planet no doubt seemed barren and even foreign to Noah's family, it would once again be a place where life would thrive. 
It's the same blessing that was given to the animals in Adam at their creation. Now, Adam was, Noah was the new Adam, and his sons would repopulate the earth. Thus, Noah's sons were strategic in God's plan and included in his blessing. Since Noah was a descendant of Seth, the line of Sethites continued, and with it, the pro-evangelian promise of God to send a deliverer. No one since the time of Noah has survived anything of the magnitude of the flood. So we can't imagine how deeply this small band of people needed such assurance. It's been said that one thing people can't live without is hope. God assured Noah's family that they had not been spared only to come to a childless end. Humanity wouldn't die off. God had a plan, and they were part of this plan. Their main mission was to repopulate the earth. Now, before the flood, the, the, the fall, before the fall, Adam's relationship with the animals was friendly and peaceful, peace, peaceable. Although the animals' fear of mankind may have resulted from the fall, the animals on the ark didn't seem to be a threat at all to Noah's family. But when they disembarked, God told Noah and his sons that fear and dread of them would fall on animal life and that all animal life was given into their hands. It's possible that God was saying that the peaceful relationship Noah and the animals had enjoyed on the ark wouldn't continue and that pre-flood animosity would return. Or perhaps the implication was that animals would fear man for the first time. If the animals hadn't feared humans before the flood, this change would have surprised Noah's family. Whether or not a change from the antediluvian world, the animals' fear actually protected Noah's family. Since many of the carnivorous animals could reproduce more quickly than Noah's family, and in some cases easily overpower them, without any fear, they could have easily overtaken the small human family. The animals' fear also made them subservient to humans for the very practical uses, uses we use animals for today. Oxen and horses plow our fields and bear our burdens. Goats and cows give us their milk, sheep, their wool, etc. God's command to Noah to repopulate the earth and his protection from the animals ensured Noah that human life would continue. Next, verses 3 and 4 Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Whether or not people ate meat prior to the flood, God now gave them formal permission to do so, with one exception. They weren't to eat meat with blood in it. The prohibition was for human protection, guarding against degeneration into barbaric practices such as eating animals while they're still alive or superstitiously drinking its blood to draw in the dead victim's strength. But the prohibition also served as a sanitary and safety measure, 
since meat without the blood, with the, with the blood drained, preserves for so much longer. In addition to protecting the human population, and perhaps more importantly, God's instruction against eating or drinking blood was for human education. Did you notice that God twice refers to lifeblood? Blood symbolizes life. Although Noah's family was free to kill and eat the animals, the prohibition against blood reminded them that all life was still valuable to God. So Noah and his family were blessed with freedom to eat meat and equally blessed by this one prohibition. They were assured that in the new world order, life would continue and a food source would be available. Then God reaffirmed the value of human life to Noah's family in yet another way. Prior to the flood, people were exceedingly wicked. Murder must have been rampant. While the incidents involving Cain and Lamech imply that the death penalty was used before the flood, it's not until after the flood that we find God mandating it. Look at verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. The requirement that animals and human beings alike be put to death for murdering a human being not only reaffirmed the value of human life, but also instituted law. Commentators widely hold this command to have laid the foundation for all civil government. The principle, this particular principle, later formalized in the Mosaic Law and known as the Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. That was a check to the depraved human heart. Fear of punishment not only encouraged respect, it also regulated justice so that many lives weren't claimed for the crimes of just one person. Punishment was to be commensurate with the crime. The basis for the sanctity of human life is man's creation in God's image, as verse 6 affirms. Throughout history, some people have viewed capital punishment as inconsistent with valuing human life, but it isn't inconsistent when human authorities enact justice on God's behalf. Except in special cases where governing authorities act in direct contradiction to God's laws, Romans 13 tells us, Romans 13 tells us that God considers them to be his representatives on earth. They're acting on his behalf. Now, in establishing a new world order, God assured Noah that more people would be born. He assured him a food source would be available. And then he assured them that human life was of high value. And finally, in verse 7, God reaffirmed his call to fruitfulness. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it. The words, as for you, appear to reflect a, a prioritizing of matters. Procreation was essential for the survival of the race, and also gave Noah and his family, who were almost certainly reeling with shock 
from the overall flood experience, a renewed sense of a God-given life purpose. Procreation was a place to begin. I'm sure you'd agree that, by nature, human beings are dependent on some measure of consistency, order, and purpose. We can't survive without a few fixed principles in life. After the flood, the shaken psyches of the human remnant needed direction and assurance. God blessed them with purpose and a few principles of order. That brings us to our first principle, which is that those who look to God are blessed with purpose in life and principles of order. Those who look to God are blessed with purpose in life and principles of order. Has it occurred to you that God can bring order into the details of our lives just as easily as he can give overarching principles for humanity? I've got to admit that too often I've waited until I came to the end of my own resources before asking God to order my ways. I remember one particular occasion when our four children were growing up. I was especially busy with responsibilities outside as well as inside the home. I felt frustrated daily trying to balance my responsibilities. Finally, I asked God to give me a pattern by which to order and prioritize all of my work. Several weeks went by before I received his answer. At late one night, it happened to be a New Year's Eve, I awoke with a sense that God wanted to speak to me. In that moment, I wasn't thinking at all about the earlier request I'd made of him. It, since it was New Year's Eve, I thought maybe God wanted me to thank him for the past year or something along those lines. So when I first heard God speak to my heart the, and heard this thought that came to mind, it didn't make sense to me. It was simply the words, four o'clock. After a silent moment, enlightenment immediately came. I knew that God was answering my prayer. God was telling me to set aside all of my responsibilities outside the home by four o'clock each afternoon. And after that, focus exclusively on my family's needs. The rule required some discipline on my part, but it turned out to be very effective for me and for our family. Now, it isn't a rule that will work for everyone, but God knew it was the perfect solution for me. For the most part, I faithfully followed that rule the remainder of the time our children lived at home. And it most definitely brought the order that was needed to my days. Our God is an orderly God. He will help you order your days if you ask him to do this. He never gives us a job without being able to tell us the best way to get it done. Which area of your life needs God's ordering? No one knows better than he. Maybe you've arrived at a stage in life where you feel you've lost your purpose and you're waiting on him for new direction. 
Well, you know, often our trouble is our own impatience with his timing in revealing a next step in our lives. God's primary purpose and will for our lives is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Waiting on him accomplishes this by building our character and teaching us perseverance in prayer. Will you commit yourself to that purpose first and foremost while you seek him for other specific direction? We can be sure that God's timing is always perfect. He's a loving father who doesn't intend to make it difficult for us to discover his will. We may feel that a revelation of direction from him is overdue, but that's just never the case. If we're following all previous instructions from him and seeking to please and follow him, we can be sure that his time for us to leave our current activity or position hasn't arrived until he reveals the next step. Purpose and order in life are God's blessings. In the remainder of the passage, we see that God also blessed Noah with a promise, a covenant. In 1933, a French archaeological expedition was working at Mari, an ancient Amorite city along the Euphrates River. Thousands of clay tablets were discovered in the town's royal archives, vividly illustrating life in 18th century B.C. Mesopotamia. More specifically, the Mari tablets are rich resources for understanding contractual agreements, covenants, of the era in which Israel's patriarchs actually lived. Additionally, discoveries from the end of the Hittite Empire, although these come from a later period, 1450 to 1200 B.C., reveal the format of ancient treaties. Although the flood occurred during the more ancient primeval period, all of these tablets are still helpful. Since students, Bible students, teach us that customs ordinarily linger for many generations in the Middle East. Bible students and historians and such. Well, ancient treaties were often made after wars as a step toward embarking on peace. That's just one of the things that we've learned from these tablets. The Hittites, although they may have not have been the originators, particularly used two kinds of treaties. Parity treaties, P-A-R-I-T-Y, parity treaties, and suzerainty treaties, S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N-T-Y, suzerainty, suzerainty treaties. A parity treaty is a covenant between two equals, such as the head of a Hittite empire and the king of a foreign region. A suzerainty treaty was an agreement a lord or king would make with his underlings, his subjects. These were used after one king conquered another in battle, bringing those of the conquered land into subjection. The subjects had no say in these covenants, and they included a preamble identifying the lord or the king, the, the suzerain, making the covenant. They included a historic prologue, which described the past history between the nations, usually emphasizing the suzerain's past graciousness and goodness toward his new vassals, 
and their history of disregard and disrespect toward him. Then a main body, which described the stipulations of the covenant, the specific obligations of the vassal toward their new sovereign. This section usually also included warnings about any attempt at rebellion. Now, on some occasions, these three main sections were followed by enumeration of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, an instruction that kept the covenant that the covenant be kept in a safe place and read from time to time to the public, and finally in a list of witnesses to the covenant. I'm smiling because those of you who've read through the Old Testament probably know where I'm going. When we get to the study called Exodus in our God of the Word lessons, we'll see that God's covenant with Israel follows that very distinctive format. And then there were land grants, a different kind of treaty in which sovereign deeds land are a third uh, to others. That was a third kind of ancient covenant. Now, it seems that mankind has always made legal agreements of one kind or another. Even marriages today are an agreement, a covenant of sorts. The Bible tells of a few treaties between people. However, biblical covenants generally reference the covenants God has made. As early as Genesis 2, the Bible emphasizes God's involvement with and interest in the people he created. We shouldn't be surprised that he's interacted with us in ways that are familiar to to us and the people of every age. Covenants are something familiar to us, so he has interacted with us uh, by giving us covenants. His covenants also prove his interest in establishing a relationship with us. Of course, since God has no equal, his covenants aren't ever parody treaties. As Lord of all and sovereign of the universe, he's certainly under no obligation to enter any kind of agreement with us. The covenants God's made are are the suzerainty or unilateral variety. In biblical covenants, the promise plays an important role. One historian calculated out of roughly 7,500 treaties that were signed between 1500 BC and AD 1850 and stated these covenants were stated to be eternally in effect. On average, the treaties actually only remained in effect for about two years. Unlike man-made contracts and promises, when God gives a promise, he keeps it. Some of God's covenants are conditional on the behavior of the subjects, and some are not. The covenant God made with Israel at Sinai included the consequences of transgressing it. God often gave a sign as a reminder of each of his covenants. When making a list of God's covenants, some Bible scholars include more than others. However, there are five God-given covenants on every Bible student's list. The first is God's covenant with Noah. The Noahic covenant was God's unconditional covenant with all the earth, never to destroy it again by flood. Later, God initiated a covenant with Abraham, in which Abraham was promised land, 
numerous descendants, and blessing to and through him. Now, our Bibles, as you surely know, are divided between the Old and the New Covenants, also referred to as Testaments. Testament is an English word translated from the Greek signifying a covenant. The Old Covenant is a reference to God's covenant with Israel. It was given in Moses' day to bless Israel, but it was conditional on obedience to his law. Another widely recognized covenant is God's unconditional promise that one of David's descendants would always sit on Israel's throne. The reign of Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. Now, the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel foretold a new covenant, the one for which our New Testament is named. It's God's unconditional promise to change hearts so that we could know him on the basis of relationship rather than on the basis of rules. Jesus inaugurated it at his last meal with his disciples and sealed it on Calvary with his blood. It's commemorated by the ordinances of baptism and communion. Well, the covenant God gave in Genesis 9 was to Noah, his sons, and their descendants, and every living creature on earth. It was his unilateral, unconditional guarantee never to destroy the entire earth and all its inhabitants again by flood. The rainbow was the sign of this covenant. The English word translated rainbow is simply bow in the Hebrew. This word's normally used with regard to weaponry, as in bow and arrows, and it's translated weapon. Rainbows may or may not have appeared prior to the flood. Most often it's assumed they didn't. In verse 15, God said that this sign was to remind Noah that God himself was remembering his promise. Some have suggested that the hanging of God's bow in the sky indicated a cessation of his hostility carried out in the judgment of the flood. It was a sign of peace. In their visions of the throne room of God, Ezekiel and John described the appearance of a rainbow. Scholar Franz Delich said that for us, every rainbow typifies the readiness of the heavenly to pervade the earthly. He has hung his bow for now, his weaponry, his cup of wrath, but future judgment awaits. Let's not miss the particular significance of the rainbow for Noah's family, though. Surely every future drop of rain could easily have been understood by them as the onset of life-threatening devastation and triggered post-traumatic terror. The rainbow assured Noah's sons that they would live to fulfill their charge to multiply and fill the earth. God made an unconditional promise that gave Noah and his family the security they needed to live healthy lives. God's promises are intended to assure us. That's our second principle, that God's promises are intended to assure us. 
Today, all who receive Christ as Savior and Lord live under the new covenant. God's guaranteed that we no longer need to fear the wrath of his judgment. He calls us his own children, even his friends. He's promised that we will remain in relationship with him eternally. Yet, many Christians live with insecurity and fear that belie their true position under this covenant. A belief that God can't be trusted and that we can't be assured of his love, protection, guidance, goodness, or his faithfulness. Can Do you live with confidence that you can fulfill the mission God's given you? All of God's promises are intended for our assurance. We miss the point if we only know of these promises and stop short of believing and applying them to our present needs. So which of his promises do you need to remember, believe, and apply today? Are you lonely? Do you need relational insurance? Assurance? Jesus has promised he will never leave you. Hebrews 13.5 Is it financial assurance you need? He's promised to see your needs and provide for you just as he provides for the birds of the air. Matthew 6.25-33 Do you lack confidence that you belong to him? Maybe you need spiritual assurance. God has promised to faithfully forgive and cleanse those who confess their sins to him. 1 John 1, 9. He's promised to make sons and daughters of those who put their trust in Jesus. John 1, 12 and 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Assurance of salvation, folks, is based on his faithfulness to his promises, not on our faithfulness to him. The God who established his new covenant 2,000 years ago is still faithful to his promises today. Well, I pray that you will never experience any kind of true psychological trauma. But anytime we are overwhelmed, God is there. He is there to offer us direction and assurance, just as he did for Noah. Thank you.